one of your recent, not that recent, but one of your last uh, blog posts was on whether people who fake data are stupid or something like that. <laughs> um, whether, or whether, sorry, the people we catch mm -hmm. are those people stupid. Um, and I was kind of wondering in general along those lines. So do you think for whatever reason, let's say you want to fake some data and get away with it, do you think you could do it? Oh, absolutely. I could because I'm smart. <laughs> also, sorry. Um, yeah, uh, but under, so uh, I'll add to clarifications to that it has to be open data sets oh, yeah. and show individual data sets in the like data points of the Easy. Fingers and that kind of easiest stuff. thing in the world so how do you do it um well so we can get into this later but we've 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 seen that you can be very very bad at this and essentially get caught and still nobody will do anything about it yeah um so you don't really have to worry about doing a very good job of it but honestly But so you don't get noticed even. Right. So if you want to completely evade detection, basically all you need is to really understand the generative model behind the sort of data you're looking at. So if you are a cognitive psychologist who wants to gin up some Stroop data and you are used to thinking at least a little bit about multi-level modeling, right, you can think about Some subjects will be faster than other subjects. Some reaction times in some conditions will be faster than other reaction times in other conditions. Here's the amount of variability we usually see between people or between trials within a person. If you can make that model, you can make the data, right? Because that's the model people will use when analyzing the data. You can make data that looks perfectly natural given that model. Um, so to me, I think any degree of sophistication whatsoever with regard to what data on this measure usually looks like or what effect sizes of these manipulations usually look like. Um, if you know those things at all, you can fake data quite convincingly on these things. But So I guess one thing I think that might be, that might give you away is like if you use some sort of function and then it's, it's like too smooth almost of a normal distribution, let's say, or something like that. Like when it's can't you can't you detect you know when when something matches a distribution too closely? Mm. If 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 you're using these functions that do pulls from a normal distribution or a beta distribution or whatever, um, they will be just as noisy as any data should be from that null or normal or beta distribution, right? So if I tell R pull me a thousand subjects worth of data from a normal distribution. It will be as spiky or as smooth as a hundred data points from that distribution should be. Um, if I'm super sophisticated, I could manually add a blemish or two to the data set. You know, the, the, the way that like a Japanese artist would deliberately inflict some sort of minor imperfection on an otherwise perfect a uh, piece of pottery or wood carving or whatever. Um, but it's, it's, it requires so much data to be able to say like, oh, this is suspiciously smooth or this is suspiciously perfect. Um, if you think about some of the guys that Uri Simonson caught, guys like Santa or Smeesters or Forster, Those guys made the mistake of doing the same perfect pattern repeatedly. 
you can't catch somebody with these patterns unless they've done the same pattern multiple times. If you do it just once, it's not a pattern, right? And if you're going to accuse somebody of cooking their data, you need to be able to say, like, the odds of this pattern manifesting in real data is one in a hundred thousand or one in a million or one in 10 million or something like that. Um, so if you're doing just a one-off, you know, you, there's no pattern. Nobody can, can, can mount that much statistical evidence against you. Yeah, it's weird that it's, I mean, I guess that's why the question was also asked on, on the tweet and on your blog post. It's like, are we only catching the people who are just... We are really absolutely catching only the people who are really bad at this. <laughs> um, uh, Joe Simmons uh, had a uh, talk at SPSP, what was it, 2020, I guess, the last SPSP before the world ended. And I keep going back to it and watching it. The title of the talk is, uh, What Real Research Findings Look Like? And in there, he talks about, um, you know, the difference between a robust set of findings with some statistical power behind them versus a null set of findings that, you know, look successful only thanks to publication bias and QRPs, some combination of the two. The third thing he brings out is um, findings that are false because they have been fabricated. And Joe Simmons is a lot smarter and a lot more experienced than me. And in this talk, he says explicitly, I'm only going to tell you what stupid fraud looks like because I don't know how to catch smart fraud. And I am exactly the same way. Um, you have to not only make up your data probably several times to get caught, you have to be bafflingly incompetent at it in order to get, to get caught. I wonder like, what that also says about... So the people who are really, really bad at creating or faking their data... I mean, would they be also then, would you assume that they also write worse papers so it almost doesn't matter quite as much because their papers aren't that great anyway? Or is there no correlation between ability to fake data and ability to I really to don't know. Paper? I mean, thinking about Stoppel, he was a pretty effective author, I guess, right? You don't get yeah. 58 papers that you later have to retract by being a bad writer. Um, and some of these were in quite high-profile journals that, you know, want an article that really lays out the theoretical importance and, you know, builds excitement in the reader and stuff like that. So you look at somebody like uh, Stoppel, I would say there uh, you have a lot more writing ability than you have data sense. Um, so I don't think that those two are necessarily correlated. Yeah. By the way, do you know what, what, what actually happened with Stoppel? Like, is he... What is he doing now? Do you know? I have no idea what he's up to. I wonder like where you go from there because is it fabricating data? Is that illegal enough to get you in prison or is it? I don't believe he ever did jail time. <laughs> uh, okay. So they just kick you out of the academic they, setting. They basically. kick you out. Um, yeah, I don't know what he's up to. I, I imagine um, he's maintaining a pretty low profile. Um, I think he speaks <laughs> a little bit to what he's up to in his uh, autobiography, Ontsporing. Uh, translated as derailment by Nick Brown. Um, it's an interesting read. It's available for free on Nick Brown's website. Um, so okay. go ahead and check it out and tell Nick Brown I sent you. <laughs> okay, that's. 
I'm going to check that out. But wait, why does Nick Brown have it on his website? Someone else's autobiography, isn't that? So it's Stoppel's autobiography, but it's written in Dutch. And Nick Brown is a bit of a uh, polyglot. Um, I understand that he speaks Dutch fluently as well as English. So as kind of a public service, he translated it into English. That's my understanding of it. Huh. But wouldn't Stab would say, it's just, wouldn't he say like, hey, that's my copy if I don't publish it? Like, isn't I, it? I mean, you know, it, it seems it seems like he would have grounds for doing that, but he hasn't. He has not. He hasn't. It does not seem that he's DMCA'd. Okay. Uh, the, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So. Okay, well, then I'm going to check it out. So as I mentioned, I'd like to talk about your blog post, but just before that, there was um, two things, uh, two brief things that I saw on your CV that I just wanted to ask about briefly. Um, so these are both sections or statements I don't think I've seen on other CVs, but then again, how many CVs have I read? Um, I don't really read them that much. Uh, but so the one question is, why would you always sign your reviews? So that's the last statement, last sentence on your CV is, I always sign my reviews. So, you know, I'm, I should maybe say I'm as... Uh, just entered the third year of my PhD now, so I've, I have some experience with peer review, but you know, not a huge amount. Um, so, what are some arguments for or against signing your? Yeah, so your your reviews and why have you done it? Yeah. The reason I sign my peer reviews is um, I put a lot of work into those peer reviews. I really try my hardest to be thorough and fair, and so I kind of want people to know I'm out here doing that work. Um, it so. It's a complicated thing um, because it's a lot easier for me to sign my peer reviews as a white guy um, than other people might have signing their reviews. Um, So far, I'm not aware of anybody who has tried to retaliate against me for the things I've written in reviews. Instead, my experiences have generally been positive. I'll be at a conference or something and somebody will say, oh, you know, your reviews really helped us out with this meta-analysis or whatever. Um, so I think it helps me be accountable. It makes me kind of do, you know, find the nice things I can say about the paper at the same time I'm criticizing it. And it also, you know, kind of creates an amount of transparency so that if it's results that conflict with something that I've written, then, you know, I have to own up to that. I have to say, Hey, I'm Joe Hilgard. I don't like Hmm. your results, but (laughs) <laughs> um, I'll do my damnedest to try to put that aside. Um, or if I'm saying like, oh, you should si- you should read Hilgard, you know, at all 2018 on this, uh, then people know that I'm not like trying to be slick with it. I just think that maybe they should check out my paper. Um, so for me, it's kind of an accountability thing, but also a visibility thing. Um, I started doing it, I think, either late in grad school or on my postdoc. Um, I was uh, kind of desperate for exposure, <laughs> right? Uh, because <laughs> I didn't know if I would have a shot at a tenure track job or not. Um, so I thought basically anything that can get the name Joe Hilgard out there uh, will maybe be good for me. So I started signing my reviews. Okay, so it's more of a, a self-promotion. Sounds so it's, it's equal parts accountability <laughs> and self-promotion, yeah, okay. which works for me. It may not work for everybody. Yeah, but then, uh, so when you so when you review a paper, do you then 
getting to slightly more about the fraud and error detection, do you actively see whether you can find any errors in there or something? Or is it and errors in terms of like, you know, whether the stats add up or? Yeah, I mean, that stuff is always on my mind, right? And if I can catch, if I can catch something in peer review, it is so much easier to deal with than catching something once it's published. Um, I have been waiting seven months for a journal to publish a retraction notice that they showed me seven months ago, right? So okay. it can take seven months for them just to publish the retraction notice. Whereas if you find something wrong in peer review and you squish it in peer review, it's dead within two months. So yeah, I, I you know, I, I cast an eye over everything. Um, and I also always request, you know, within reason, the raw data. Um, I'm a signature of the Peer Reviewers Open Initiative. Um, this is a kind of collective action thing from peer reviewers to push for greater data accessibility in journal articles. This is something we need because we all know and have known for decades that data available on request is a lie. Um, Yelty Vickerts and a bunch of people tried it like way back in the 90s or the early 2000s. Um, and they got data from like something like a quarter of papers that said data available upon request. So data is not available upon request. The only way that data will be available is that it is a condition of publication to put it up in a public repository like Open Science Framework or GitHub or Dataverse or something like that. Um, so as part of my peer reviews, I always ask people, put it up on the internet if you can, or give me a good reason why you cannot. Um, and when they put the data up, I tend to like to grab the data and play with it. Um, but I don't always have the time for all of that, right? I can't give everything the complete uh, check and complete strip down and rebuild. So sometimes it's a matter of, well, how fishy does this sound? I mean, like one thing I noticed and, you know, at the end of the conversation, I think I'd like to talk about the paper that I've had some problems with. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of time to check for errors because yes. as soon as you check for errors and you're, you make an error, you just look like a complete arsehole. <laughs> and like an idiot and you know so the, i did a presentation for our lab just to present this paper and say like why i think there are problems with the paper in terms of just you know not bad methods but just in terms of like something's wrong with the figures and data we're being presented here mm -hmm. um it took so much time yeah. <laughs> like it's such a lengthy yeah process yeah you only get one shot right um, if you are trying to bring these concerns to some sort of authority figure, everything has to be perfect, everything has to be damning, and everything on your end has to be completely flawless. Yeah. Because if you have made any sort of mistake, now you just look like a crank and an incompetent. <laughs> um, and it's hard enough to get people to listen to you the first time much less for you to say, oops, I made a mistake, let me come back and uh, maybe you'll listen to me a second time. You will not get a second time. So I have experienced this sort of uh, error checking to be very frustrating and very time consuming just because of the need to make sure everything is 
neat as a pin um, before going to any sort of authority figure. Yeah. But so that's then when you review a paper, you, you, I mean, you have, to, of course, like you have some basic checks that probably everyone does often, even un, unintentionally or unconsciously. But yeah, you, you don't go through checking every, whether all the statistics are internally consistent. I've got a good sense for internal consistency in statistics, right? Um, so like the relationship between a T value and a P value or an F value and a P value, um, you can shake me out of bed in the middle of the night. And I know that a T of two corresponds roughly to a P of 0.05. Um, I have some R tools that I use to try to check the relationship between a T value and sample size and the effect size. So um, some of the kind of the R packages I use for meta analysis um, are designed around saying, well, if you've got this many participants and your T value is this, that implies you have an effect size of that. Um, so sometimes I'll see a paper where the T value says one thing about the effect size and the means and standard deviations would say something else about the effect size. And so there I start to get like a little anxious because there you see maybe it's not internally consistent. Um, but there's really not like one set of checks you can do for errors or for, especially for fraud, right? Everything is its own unique case. You don't know what the true model is behind fraudulent data. Yeah. I mean, it could be so many things, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But then, so I mentioned there were two things on your CV that I was curious about. The other thing is now, I mean, what we're going to basically talk about, namely, you have a section about retractions motivated by my work yeah. and corrections motivated by my work. But maybe a more, a more general question is, I mean, I have to admit, I, I got to know you through that blog post. Someone retweeted it or something. And then I saw the blog post, read it, um, was both, uh, thought it was great and immensely frustrating. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I, I guess my question is kind of, is this, it seems like you're doing this quite a bit, right? And I guess my question, question is whether it's intentional or like whether you, uh, again, this sounds such such a negative word, like policing or something. Yeah. Like, is that something you you want to do and try to do, or does it just kind of do you just have a more acute eye for this? Or I love it and I hate it. I do it more than I really ought to. I didn't choose this life. Um, it, I just kind of got plunged into it. So, with regard to the CV, the reason I list these things on the CV, as ghoulish as it seems, right? Like, literally ghoulish. Like, a ghoul is a monster that eats the flesh of the dead. Um, here I am sustaining my CV on the cadavers of retracted papers. Um, but I list these things on my CV because I think that it is a among my legitimate scientific contributions. Um, yeah, definitely how much more effective it is to retract a single erroneous paper than to spend 20 years and who knows how many resources trying over and over again to replicate it before finally everybody says, okay, maybe that thing can't be replicated. Um, it's much nicer to be able to nip these things in the butt. And so when I get a paper retracted on those few occasions that I have, it's required an amount of work that is roughly commensurate with an original publication. And I think the benefit is roughly commensurate with an original publication. And thankfully, my department sees it as being 
a legitimate intellectual contribution as well. So I list these things on my CV. There was another question you had there that I lost in my spieling. Uh, what's that? I can't remember. <laughs> I got all, uh, I got all worked up. Oh, I mean, did I do do I do this because like I enjoy the policing or because and the yeah, or just like how it comes about. How it comes yeah, about. That's, that's kind of well. Like everybody else, I read my literature. Um, I do work in an area that has some, you know, some kind of uh, woolly areas. Uh, we we butt heads over some things, and I try to make sure that my work is well situated in the existing literature. So I'm reading what's out there. Um, and sometimes in the process of reading what's out there, I'll notice something that just seems either fatally flawed or kind of straight up impossible. The results are way too good to be true, something like that. And sometimes I'll see it and I'll say, well, there's really nothing I can do about that. I know that that's probably not true, but I can't find any sort of purchase on it. There's no, there's no place for me to get leverage um, to be able to show that this result is too good to be true. You mean like that's not like some obvious It's not error some obvious error. I just say to myself, there's no way that's true. It's probably some sort of mistake or worse, um, but I'll never be able to show that. So I'm just going to put it in my folder and try to forget about it. Um, but in the case where there's a paper where I think I can show that the result is too good to be true, or that things don't add up, there's this sort of idiotic optimism that makes me want to try to do something about it. And so it's chasing that optimism uh, that gets me kind of perseverating and grinding on these papers over and over again and trying to see what can be done about it and um, kind of see if our systems are capable of doing something about it. Shall we then maybe just talk about the the Zhang, I guess the paper or papers? The whole Zhang affair. Yeah, affair, maybe that's a good term. Um, <laughs> so maybe, I can't remember whether this is in the blog post or not, but how did you first come across the paper and under what kind of, why were you reading it? Yeah, um, so I study, among other things, the relationship between violent media and aggressive behavior. Um, that's how I got interested in meta-analysis. That's how I got interested in the study of aggressive behavior um, because people had been having this intense argument for decades. And I thought, oh, well, maybe I can be like a fresh face in this conversation. I can run some studies. I can do my own meta-analysis and figure out what I want to believe. Um, so a lot of my substantive work is in this area. I'm now trying to do stuff with kind of just the psychometric properties of some of our aggression measurements. Um, but so Google Scholar knows that I am interested in studies on the relationship between violent media and aggressive behavior. And so when uh, Zhang's 2018-2016 uh, Youth and Society papers came out, Google Scholar helpfully delivered them to my doorstep. Um, and so I took a glance at the abstract and I thought, wow, that's quite a sample size. I better read this. Those are the 3,000 people or whatever it was, right? 3,000 children. 
Yeah, 3,000 children in a randomized controlled trial. Um, this is a research area where I want to say my dissertation was the second largest experiment on this topic. And I had like maybe 300, 250 good participants at the end of it. Um, so you have a paper that has 3,000 subjects and their children at that. Um, this would be basically more data than the entire field generated between 1980 and 2010. So uh, this one study would be a real important chunk of data. So I had to read it. And then were you then already questioning, did they really collect 3,000 people? Or was that were you just impressed by it? I was impressed by it. Um, kind of like many of the people I tried to approach. As I, as I read the article, I got kind of curious about like, well, is this legit or not? Um, one of the things I was curious about was, well, how feasible is it to collect 3,000 children's worth of data in a randomized controlled trial? And both me and the people I talked to kind of don't know what to expect because it's China. Um, and we don't really know how research methods go in China. We don't know how uh, IRB review works in China. Um, we don't know how much cooperation there is between like primary school teachers and research psychologists in China. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it, it seemed possible to me that they just had really good logistics and really good buy-in from the primary school teachers. Um, if you, you know, had enough, if you had the process set up well enough, conceivably you could accomplish this. Yep. Okay, so impressed, maybe slightly, a little bit critical, but impressed in general. And then you just read and uh, questions came immediately or? Questions came up pretty quickly the moment I started looking at the statistics and the tables. So table one of the paper or whatever is basically your ANOVA table, right? You have the effect of the media the students were randomized to consume. You have the effect of, I want to say, gender or age. And you have the effect of like trait aggression in there. But it's not an ANOVA table such that you or I would recognize where there are like means at each level of the cell combinations or whatever. Um, there are just gibberish numbers there. Um, it looks like maybe... The sums of squares and the mean sum of squares or something. Uh, and then there's an F value and then there's an arbitrary number of significance asterisks after the F value that has nothing to do with the actual F value. So there's like a F value of 1.43 and it's got a significance asterisk after it. And there's an F value that's, you know, it, just the P values didn't match the F values at all. And so where do you, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm trying to kind of basically recreate kind of your process of going through this. So then do you just read the rest and say, okay, there's just more or was that already enough for you to go, okay, there's just like, what were you thinking at that time? Was it just, okay, they messed up some figures, some, some, some numbers somewhere or. Yeah. What I thought was they messed up some numbers. Um, I thought. You know, 
There's something very strange with this. I'm not sure what to make of it. If I don't really want to get involved, I'll tell the editor that, you know, this table... First, I told the author that the table makes no sense. Um, and the author said, oh, I'll fix it. And I waited a while and I said, hey, did you fix it? And he said, oh, yeah, I fixed it. And I didn't see any correction published. So I went to the editor. I say, editor, this author told me he was going to fix this. Has he fixed it? And the <laughs> editor like says, this is the first I've heard of it. Nobody's come forward saying they're going to fix anything. Yeah. So I told the editor, maybe you should follow up with this author and get him to fix it. And then I figured at that point, I was just done. Um, I thought, you know, maybe in the process of fixing it, whatever the problems were, if there were any, would come to light. Um, and the editor could handle it on their own. But I started reading the other papers out of uh, Dr. Zhang. Um, me and a couple other people on Twitter got kind of curious about the larger output here. And when I started Sorry, doing... When, when you say people on Twitter, was this already being talked about? Like, that none of this made sense? or Yeah, somebody... I don't, I don't know if it was because I had posted the table and it didn't make any sense or somebody else had posted the table. Um, but a few of us had like a small conversation about some of the weird things in the paper. Um, they also had this mediation model set up as, so the, the hypothesized model here shows the relationship between violent game play as causing aggression as something that's mediated by gender and age and personality. Now, of course, violent video games can't change your gender. They can't change your age. They probably don't change your personality very much. Those things are all we usually think of as kind of like stable pre-existing factors, right? So they would not be things that mediate the relationship. So as, as we read these papers, we said, wow, there are lots of kind of weird things in here maybe sloppy. I don't know, you know, how much, how, how, just how bad we expected it to be, but we, we thought it looked sloppy at least. And then, so you'd already contacted the authors and the journal. I mean, was it then, I'm, try, I'm trying to like imagine just what the, basically what it was like for you to, to go through that whole thing. Hmm. Was it just you send an email and then you wait two months and then you go, wait, what happened with that thing? And then you send an email again? Or So here's one of the things that, not to jump ahead here, but um, I think that there are very serious problems with all of the papers Dr. Zhang has published. Um, that's why I wrote to his institution to say, hey, would you please check on this guy? And that's why I wrote to all these other journals saying, hey, would you please look at this paper you published and consider retracting it for these reasons? Um, so I think that there are, in general, serious issues with Zhang's work. Um, uh, 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 I'm losing my train of thought here. Shoot. <laughs> I, I start trying to set the, 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 the background and then I get... Yeah, I mean, uh, I was asking like whether you send an email every few months. Oh, yes. Or... So, so issues with Zhang's work in general, they're kind of obvious problems, right? Um, you can just look at the F value and say that doesn't, that's not P less than 0.05 at that F value. 
One of the remarkable things about Dr. Zhang that has made this easier still to pursue um, is that at least at the time, he was very swift in replying to emails. Okay. So I would send him a question and I would go to bed and the next morning I would get up and I'd have a response from him. Um, that is not how it's been with other people I have had problems with. More commonly, when you write to somebody saying, hey, can you explain to me what's the deal with this thing in your paper? You can wait two months and then you can nudge them again and then you can wait another two months. And by then, you know, somebody's changed institutions or you have a new set of responsibilities and it's basically a waiting game. Um, people will just wait you out. So um, Zhang's quick replies to email made this easier for me. Um, but most people uh, don't reply to emails nearly so quickly as, as he does. So he, 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 he made a, for all data fraudsters out there, he made a crucial error there Yeah, in responding to emails. Yeah, I've got, I've got, uh, I've got something in my drafts folder of, you know, how to make up data and get away with it. And rule number one is don't reply to emails, make somebody re email you 20 times over two months before you reply and um, make it like their problem that they're emailing you so much. It's inappropriate. It's harassment for them to email you so often. You're just over here trying to be a normal person. Yeah, I'm just trying to do research. I'm just trying to do research, and you have some sort of weird chip on your shoulder about me. I don't understand it. Yeah, I mean, that's basically what there's this briefly after you published your blog post there was this brief this short write-up in science mm -hmm. right about the whole thing and didn't he basically say like well this uh Hilgard guy just i don't know exactly what his phrasing was i can't remember but something like he just likes i'm trying to make a name for myself by tearing down other people's research yeah exactly which you know if it can be destroyed by the truth it deserves to be destroyed by the truth <laughs> um zhang is not the only person i have had problems with he is not the only author whom I have criticized. Um, he's not the only author where I f have some subjective probability that something is seriously wrong. So it's not a personal thing between me and Dr. Zhang. Um, and if I seem to have made a habit of this, it's just because now that I can see it, I can't stop seeing it. And I feel kind of a personal responsibility to try to deal with these things because not everybody can see it. Not everybody can do something about it. I can see it. I can do something about it. I'm the only one hard-headed enough to do something about it. Um, so I'm going to try no matter how much it sucks. Yeah. Have you, have you had any case where you, um, I, I don't, I mean, I've, I've, I've got the paper, like the, on your CV, I can see the papers that, uh, you know, were corrected or retracted. Many of those corrections, by the way, are like the most honest and simple of mistakes. Things like calculating the effect size by dividing by the standard error rather than the standard deviation. Um, so just because something's in the corrected column there doesn't mean that there's something fishy about it. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> just want to make that super clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've seen I see some papers that you've got here, but I'm, is there anything that you thought oh, this is too uh, too hot to handle, or you're slightly afraid of touching that paper or that author or something like that? No, 
No, um, I am fortunate to work. So I can imagine that things could be too hot to handle um, if they touched on some sort of some sort of scientific issue with real stakes. Um, fortunately, unfortunately, I work in a scientific area that has no stakes whatsoever. Um, in 2010, the Supreme Court ruled that violent video games were protected speech under the First Amendment. Um, so the stakes here are whether little Johnny gets to play Fortnite for an hour or not. Uh, it's, 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 it's not like people's lives are in the balance here. It's not like we're trying to, um, end racism or, uh, you know, figure out the, the correct risk assessment related to the coronavirus. Um, none of this stuff matters. Um, and the responses of certain editors have really hammered home that none of this matters. Um, so if I were working in an area where things did matter and there were kind of like social and cultural stakes attached to it, I would tread maybe a little bit more like lightly. Um, but this this stuff is all just parlor tricks with undergraduates. It it has no real world applications. Um, nobody's going to try to, you know, portray me as a right wing nut or a bleeding heart liberal over the work I do here. So I can, I can do whatever I need to for the science. But with hot to handle, I also meant in terms of pissing off some very influential or powerful. They already people. hate me. I mean, I don't know about <laughs> that. Because <laughs> with Zhang, it seems like, I mean, I don't know, you know, your research field or anything, but it seems like he's far away in China. Yeah. Um, Pissing him off isn't as much of a problem as if I don't know. Uh, again, I don't. Yeah, uh, certainly. I don't know. You're you're, you're a head of department, or right? Something, right? Yeah. That's well, a... so fortunately, um, none of this is unfolding within my department. My department, again, has been very supportive of me. Um, Zhang does have some uh, American co-authors, um, and they have reacted with varying levels of concern when I've tried to express to them my concerns. Um, so some have been relatively proactive. Others have said like, hey, leave me out of this or even like, what are you doing this for? Don't be a dick. Um, and um, I've definitely made some editors frustrated with me. Um, but again, those editors, I don't think were very fond of me to begin with because of my substantive research. Um, some of the findings I've got from um, either studies where I couldn't replicate an effect or meta-analyses where I say, hmm, this effect seems to be badly overestimated by publication bias. Um, so I really didn't have much to lose here. Um, the, 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 the powerful old heads um, didn't already like me. So, um, you know, that kind of reduces my leverage with them. I can't, I, can't, I don't have much pull with them, but you know, it's not like I can sour our relationship further. So you're protected by prior. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm just a pig <laughs> wallowing in the mud. <laughs> okay, well, as long as you're having fun doing it, it is fun sometimes. It is thrilling in a way that uh, my mundane research sometimes fails to be thrilling. Right? This has an element of of drama and mystery and Sherlock Holmes elements to it. Uh, that that my my day to day work doesn't always. Yeah, definitely. From the from the one case that that I've had in the, in the last few months, I definitely had the sense of like, 
yeah, you really feel like, uh, I mean, you know, you're just trying to like, as I said earlier, make sure that you don't say there's an error in something when there isn't and you're just yeah. being stupid. Um, so you're basically just trying to cover your tracks the entire time. But there is a, a sense of a adventure almost where you go like, of being like like a detective and going like, well, if this is the case and that is the case, then, you know, this can't right. also be the case or something like should that. Should we or, talk about, sh should we talk about the thing that you're curious about? Yeah, let's do that. The so okay, I've as I, uh, I think I mentioned to you before we started recording, but the um, so I'm not you know going to name the paper or anything because I mean I've thought about it and there's obviously something wrong, but I'm not mm -hmm. entirely sure yet. Um, how much I'm going to say is wrong with it and that kind of stuff because this is yeah also very new. But the the gist of it is that I've I've read a paper in one of the uh, many areas and that vaguely relates to my research. And there were some obvious errors in it. Some of them were, was just like, they said like one value in the text and another value in the figure. Like you could just see that, like not text and figure can't be both correct. Um, it started, like it's that kind of stuff. But the, um, well, let me see. Yeah. So there's, there's some basic internal inconsistencies. Mm -hmm. Then based, base, so I knew there was one, and there was, so this is the thing, some of these things can be easily identified by a lay person outside of science. Some of these errors require knowledge of some like mm -hmm. modeling techniques that the authors probably aren't familiar with. Uh, and I, yeah, I mean, <laughs> based on the analysis they've done, I can pretty much guarantee that mm -hmm. they don't know how to run this stuff. And it's it's also kind of started off for me as a kind of like, huh, I wonder how that and that figure can both be correct. And kind of trying to figure out like, okay, can, I don't think both can be correct. And I have this modeling way of finding out, mm -hmm. kind of. And so it almost started as a puzzle. And then I kind of started looking seriously into the thing and just found errors all over the place. Um, the thing is, most of these, so this is maybe the thing I should say at the beginning, from what I can tell, this is just negligence. Um, so from I've I also looked into two other papers by the same authors written at similar time, and they all kind of had some, um, how should we say, uh, uh, like not typos exactly, but those kind of errors where you go like, okay, they made a small error here, but it's not, it's not going to change your interpretation mm -hmm. of the results or anything. Um, but somehow the thing is. So it seems like basically someone just didn't take enough time to write the papers. That's <laughs> Imagine what it that. Seems like. um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, ex I mean, it's not even. Uh, yeah, but my point is, like, I don't think right. I found any fraud or anything. But there is at some point when you found lots, like, how many small errors can you find until you just start distrusting the entire thing? Yeah. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of a rough. Dis oh, and so what I I'd like. To so the thing is, I'm st setting aside like the small errors that are obvious, um, and that might just be you know some typos are not not a big deal in the grand scheme of things. Uh, I am still kind of interested in this modeling thing that I mentioned, where I'm not entirely sure whether my modeling approach of it actually shows that the errors are mm. that, that what they did is wrong or not. It's, it's kind of something I'm also actually interested from a like conceptual perspective, and so yeah. I'd like to have their data. And to analyze it and see whether what I did was correct or not. 
Now, there's two, a few things here. So the first is that, you know, as you can tell, it's not an open data set. And the second thing is the research area is clinical and these are, uh-huh. this is data from patients, even though what I'm interested in isn't clinically relevant. So let's put it this way. If I write to them, ask for the data, they could easily hand me their data without having any kind of ethical right. uh, concerns or anything like that. But they could obviously <laughs> hide behind the clinical thing if they wanted to and say, well, it's clinical data, we don't want to give it out, you know, that kind of thing. Um, furthermore, it seems that by now, so this was a few years ago, but by now all authors are fairly senior and they probably have yep. better stuff to do than respond to and dig up some data that I could imagine isn't particularly mm-hmm. well digitized and that they might just say like, oh, do just leave me alone, I've got stuff to do. Um, yeah, so that's kind of the overall picture. And yeah, I presented this in the lab and everyone I think kind of agreed and went, it seems like there's definitely something fishy going on here. But we're also not entirely sure what to do now. I mean, you know, do I mail them and say, hey, you know, I found multiple errors in your paper. Would you like to give me your data? Um, or do I say, you know, hey, I'm interested in this modeling technique. I was wondering how both figures would be correct. Yeah, so that's kind of also what I'd like to have some sort of advice on if you, from someone who just has some experience with it, because none of us have ever written an email like that. Oh, Lord. Um, so my advice to you is um, how far into your PhD are you? Uh, third year. and Well, I've basically got two more years of funding. Okay. My advice to you is don't. Contact them at all. Don't. Just don't. Uh, <laughs> because okay. here's the thing. Nobody is going to come out and give you a medal for detecting the problems with this paper. And I mean, so best best case scenario, you send them a nice note saying, hey, I noticed these issues in these papers. They say, oh, you're right. We'll fix it right away. They publish a core agendum. They give you a warm and hearty handshake for, you know, noticing the mistakes. And everybody just kind of gives each other a little thumbs up. That's the best case scenario. It involves the least amount of future work from you. It involves the most cooperation from the authors. And even in this case, um, it's not like this is going to help you with your career, right? Uh, No, no, I don't think so. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it's already wasted like a week of my my time. And you've already spent a week of research on this. So the worst case scenario is... You continue to grind on this. You continue to dump more of your research time and energies into this. And you earn three or four senior people who think that you're some sort of annoying fly that keeps biting them in the haunches. So, um, and, and so you know, you could earn yourself a uh, an enemy who is going to put negative reviews on your papers or your grant applications. Um, uh, just a slight a caveat here. Uh, yeah. It's not really from my own research field. It's kind of an adjacent thing. It, sure. I'm not sure these people would ever review my papers. Okay. Yeah. So the distance makes you safer. It also makes you easier to ignore, right? Yep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because they could say, who is this guy coming over into our field from that field? Who cares about him? <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so, you know, you're not going to receive any material benefits from this. Um, nobody is going to recognize your efforts and applaud you um, for, for identifying these mistakes. At best, you might be able to relatively painlessly correct the scientific literature um, by getting these authors to correct whatever mistakes they made, if they were indeed mistakes. Yeah. But that's the best case scenario. And so, rationally speaking, I would say don't do it. So, okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I should probably also add, I'm not sure even with the errors that uh, it necessarily disproves their main findings. Sure, yeah. Um, even when I did my modeling, it seemed like it pretty much came out the way yeah. they said it would. Yeah. Uh, it's just... Yeah, it's just a very messy paper in that sense. Um, but okay, so if but if you advise me against doing it, why are you doing it then? <laughs> because you I'm just stupid. like the, the tussle. Or? Uh, no, it's because I have no ability to uh, let things go. Uh, <laughs> I am so stupid and so obstinate, and it really just gets my blood up when um, somebody tries to blow me off or brush me off or refuses me data or whatever. Um, that I will just grind and grind and grind and grind on this. I probably should talk to a therapist instead of doing this sort of work, um, but I can't not do it. Um, and there's also kind of a research interest here for me, you know, as kind of a, a I'm not a, an out and out meta scientist, but I have meta science research interests, right? So something like the Zhang affair is to me an interesting data point as a stress test of our scientific self-correction. One of the things we tell the public for why they're supposed to believe us is because we have other scientists who are treating each other's work uh, skeptically and critically. And so if there are mistakes, one of us should find it and report it to the system and the system should work. And I am a scientist who's finding problems and reporting problems, and I am very, very curious to see whether or not the system works. Again, given how bafflingly crude the issues are in Zhang's papers, things like straight up recycling a table from another article, right? The same table appears in three different articles. Um, or, or subgroup averages of six and 10 somehow average together to yield 20. The average of six and 10 can never be 20. Um, it really suggests to me that like this is the lowest possible bar. And so the fact that some editors have brushed me off, um, the fact that it has taken so long to get some of these papers retracted, really suggests to me that there are broader problems. Um, so for me, it's been kind of this this meta science stress test. And that's been, for me, that's been worth the cost of admission. Um, but I'm, I'm on a tenure track. Uh, my department is kind to me. Um, you are at a much earlier and more vulnerable stage of your career. Um, so I would recommend against it. Oh, damn, all that work for nothing then. <laughs> Welcome to graduate school, yeah. all that work for nothing. <laughs> yeah, to be fair, I've gotten used to that point. Um, but uh, but part of me then is, you know, it's this weird combination of motives that goes into 
asking yourself what to do about it because you know part of me as you kind of said like earlier it's like this is effort like i, I put effort into this i found this thing and it you know this was work um and I, i'd like to have something almost to show for it another part is the like it's not that like the paper isn't that complicated like just please correct it like just get it right please yeah um and then there's this kind of also idealistic thing about like you know as you said as you kind of mentioned like it should be a self-correcting thing where you as soon as you mention an error people go oh i'm sorry well so um, i was a little flip when giving you my cynical advice um of just don't um <laughs> we can be a little more optimistic and say you and a more senior person together could draft a letter outlining the issues and requesting a check and correction. Um, if you can shield yourself with a senior figure and you can use a senior figure for some leverage um, so that you're taken seriously, then... I think there's a greater chance that the authors will take your concerns seriously and they will do something about it. There's still a good chance that they'll say, oh, yeah, we understand that there are some issues, but they don't substantively change the conclusions of the paper. Uh, we're very busy. That paper was X, Y, Z years ago. Um, so we'd prefer to just let it lay, you know, let it lay as it is. Um, and... I don't think that's the most thrilling outcome to this, but I think that that is a as satisfying an outcome as you can hope for, um, because everybody has stuff they're up to, and every paper kind of has a statute of limitations on it. I don't know how old these papers are. It's not super old. Not super no. old. I don't think that statute would have would apply. Yeah. Um, it's also this is so. This is the next thing. It's also one of very few papers about this particular topic. Mm. So it's almost. If you're interested in a kind of question, this is the paper you'll read. So, in a way, but thereby, kind of, you know, clinical stuff is always harder to collect, right? So, thereby, it also gains a higher input. It's not some random paper. It also came out in a fairly decent journal, um, or actually, I think, very good journal. Um, so, it there's this slight complication here that it's more, inf it's a, you know, within a somewhat smaller research area, fairly influential. So wouldn't we want that paper to be, you know, not filled with errors? Well, so maybe, maybe you should try, but, um, again, you'll need to, you'll need to express yourself concisely so that people will read the darn thing. You'll need to express yourself pleasantly so that people don't get defensive and say, no, you're wrong. Go die. Um, <laughs> And again, you'll probably need to have some sort of senior figure put their name on it as well so that you're taken seriously and um, people know, you know, the, the authors in question know that your concerns have been vetted by somebody of roughly their same power level. And if it's a good journal, I roughly feel like some of the editors at some of the better journals do take things more seriously. So... You know, I would go to the authors first, but if you need to alert the editor to issues, you could try it. The editors 
may ignore it or they may have other stuff they got to do, but at least they probably won't bite your head off for, you know, reporting concerns, errors. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tricky, th- yeah, it really is a weird trade-off where I kind of have to calculate these things about, you know, like how much time do I have on a PhD? Is it really that yeah. important? Yeah. Um, how much time does it take to actually write that letter concisely? And it takes surprisingly long to write the letter concisely. I mean, it takes me ages to invite someone to the podcast. So like <laughs> criticizing <laughs> someone is going to yeah take even longer to write that email. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a good exercise if you, if you can afford it. Yeah. In a way, I feel like I probably can in terms of time. Just also, I think maybe like you, um, Sometimes I know I'm doing dumb stuff, but I'll just do it anyway. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, uh, that, those were your words, I think. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. I own those words. Oh, good, good. Um, but, yeah, and then there's the thing like, yeah, okay, so maybe they, you know, made some slight typos here and there. And that bar's slightly higher than it should be, but who cares, right? I mean. Right. Yeah, and I, I appreciate your use of um, Hanlon's razor here. Of whose razor? What am I using? So, so many of us are fam- familiar with Occam's razor, which is um, to use the simplest, most parsimonious explanation possible. Uh, are you referring to the one that what is it? Uh, assume malice rather, uh, uh, sorry, ignorance rather than malice. Is that assume ignorance right? rather than malice, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, that's that's where I think we have to start when we see errors in a paper is assume ignorance rather than malice. That said, you know, in some cases I've been involved in, I eventually have to give up that that assumption. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, for yeah. for your case, it sounds like as you say. Probably just ignorance, not malice. Yeah. So, okay, I that's the way I've said it so far, and I still think that's the case. But it is part of me that goes, I mean. Right, yeah. I guess it's a question of, like, how much ignorance. Maybe that's more the question. But, like, so I had this thing where, so you know the uh, uh, Nick Brown and James Heathers have done, they've done these toolboxes on um, whether certain values can be correct given your sample size, like whether certain means and standard deviations. The Grim test, the sprite tool. Yeah. Exactly those things. Okay. Yes. I actually somehow couldn't quite, I wasn't entirely sure how to use it for this one, but I could use the same logic to figure out that the mean they provided can't exist. Mm -hmm. And so in principle, I'd say, okay, maybe they excluded some data. They didn't report, you know, like again, there can be some very benign reasons for that, but they never report on excluding anyone. Or any trials. There's no like anything about exclusion. Sure. And the um, uh, um, the interesting thing is that the, the 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 mean that they get and the input you put in, it really doesn't match up. Like it's kind of like it's hmm. it's a really odd value to get once you actually think about it and put it like once I like basically laid out what other values that can go into this to make this happen. Either they have way more trials than the report, which makes it no sense, or they're excluded and rounded weirdly. Yeah. And um, so there's... Or there's a data entry error, right? Yeah, or some... Somebody typed like, in 99 instead of 9. It could be, it, it could be right. anything. Okay, yeah, yeah. 
it's such. Uh, yeah. I, I always come back to Tolstoy, right? Uh, all happy families are alike. Each screwed up data set is screwed up in each their own way. <laughs> I think that's exactly what Tolstoy said. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, with data sets. Big data um, science guy, Leonard Tolstoy. <laughs> yeah. 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 But I'm, yeah, it's, yeah, I guess I'll just have to see what I do because part of me is just really curious to know, like, okay, how did they mess up this yeah. data set? Because I don't know how you can. Yeah, I'm really curious how you mess up a data set in such multiple ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you, if it's anything like my <laughs> graduate school training or my early graduate school training, it's uh, the way you get all those things screwed up is you have a grad student manually cleaning the data in Excel at two in the morning uh, when they have to present the stuff at lab meeting at 10 a.m. the following day, right? Um, yeah. I think that in many areas of psychology uh, where open code is not common, our data cleaning processes are idiosyncratic and irreproducible, um, boiling down to manual scrubbing in Excel uh, by a grad student sometime between happy hour and 3 a.m. So, you know, I feel like anything's possible sometimes in papers. Unless I could actually see like the code that does the cleaning. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. My, I never even thought of something like like manual data. <laughs> that even didn't even mm-hmm. occur to me. It's possible. <laughs> but yeah, I, I studied psychology. I I know how you how the the training is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I guess I'm not going to be idealistic then. well and so i think this comes back to um why i think some of the systematic changes are so important right um we can't have a perfectly decentralized system of reproducibility checks and uh, data cleaning guidelines and open data being you know what you feel like doing for that particular project for that particular day Things would be so much easier if we could get institutions and journals kind of on these transparency and openness guidelines, things like the top system. Um, I mean, again, when I review, I'm a signature. I'm a signatory of the peer reviewers openness initiative. I just ask for the data on everything I review as a matter of course. And I say that like I'm, you know, I'm oath bound to ask for the data. It's just the thing that I have to do. It's not personal. I didn't have to sit down and think about whether I wanted your data or not. This is just what it is to do business with me as your reviewer. Um, yeah. And so I think to the extent that we can make some of this transparency stuff just business as usual, it takes a lot of the hemming and hawing and, you know, stomach knots out of it. And we can just post the GD data and uh, people can look at it and figure out what's going on with it. And so people don't have to spend a week trying to figure out whether they need to ask for the data and then another two weeks drafting a letter. And, you know, uh, it's just so inefficient. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is the, this is kind of the, I mean, in a way for me, you know, if I just take this as a one-off, it's been an interesting intellectual exercise mm-hmm. at worst, right? Like, it's been interesting to also just for me to see, like, how can I take a paper part? And I learned a lot of stuff about my own research because, you know, it is related in some mm-hmm. sense. 
uh yeah I, I learned some stuff for that and it's it's not like this has been completely waste of time or anything um um jesus again i'm losing my thoughts today yeah sorry um i'm a bit all over the place maybe right we'll now. open up a fresh uh um, fresh can of worms is there another another uh another something else we should talk about or um okay so one question i had earlier then is i feel like in some sense you do have a it seems to me in some cases you do have a kind of obligation to say stuff though mm -hmm. right i mean so let's say in my case it's okay it's a bit of a uh, border case where you go okay probably some stupid error somewhere and the main results are still the same and it's just correcting it now would be a lot of effort for anyone involved for basically very little uh, output but then it seems to me you do also have some cases where you know for example i think what was also mentioned like in this in the science write-up of your of your blog post or the situation that this i can't remember who it was but some other uh, guy was doing a meta-analysis and included like had to include it basically because it's not retracted yeah. so it seems to me sometimes you do have an obligation to actually speak out and say i think this date there's something really wrong with this date yeah. So how do we, where do we draw this boundary between, well, it's probably just a small error that doesn't matter and this is something that has to be done if we want science to work as an enterprise? That's a good question. I'm not, gosh, how would you draw that boundary? Um, or what are some good questions maybe to ask to differentiate one from the other? Or Yeah, well, in the case of Zhang's stuff, um, the sample sizes make it, really kind of important to make sure that those numbers are right. He had, I want to say, two different papers with a sample size of 3,000, another with a sample size of 2,000. And so if you were to put all these together in a meta-analysis, like 80% of the weight of the meta-analysis will be these results. So if those are wrong, any meta-analysis, including these data, are wrong. And it's, it's, it's very difficult as a meta-analyst to say, I'm going to leave all this data on the table because I don't trust it because then it becomes, you know, you're being subjective, you're being unreasonable, you're, you know, excluding data, you're, you, it makes you look like you're putting your thumb on the, on the scales. So I, I think we can kind of assess the relative weight and importance of some studies. Um, and we can roughly tell the difference between like, uh, a minor error versus a load-bearing error, um, which sounds like that's kind of the thing you're struggling with. Um, yeah, like basically I think my problem here is an accumulation of small errors at some yeah. point should become a load-bearing error. Yeah, it, it, it does make, I mean, it sounds like you're kind of questioning the entire quality of the work given all the superficial smaller yeah, errors. It's, yeah, it's basically, yeah, it's basically like if, if, if in the final product, the thing that's been signed off by several authors gone through period if there are so many small errors in this thing yeah how many went into all the stuff that isn't even documented like the way they tested the people right and you know all this kind of stuff it's, right? it's yeah. like the brown m&ms thing right if they can't get the m&ms right it means they didn't read the whole thing correctly which means that there's probably something else that's also wrong yeah some yeah <laughs> it just makes me distrust yeah basically yeah I think. yeah um you know i wish i knew how to tell small errors from serious errors, right? Um, the thing, again, is that 
unless we can actually see the data and the code, we have no idea how deep the analytic errors run in in just the same way that unless we can see like the actual process that generated that data set, we don't know if that data set was generated by people typing in real data or Diedrich Stoppel staying up late at night, typing numbers into Excel on his own, right? Um, there's just, it's, it's this whole uh, mystery zone that without at least open data and open code, you can't penetrate that first mystery zone. And I'm not sure we'll ever be able to penetrate the second mystery zone of where this data actually came from. Um, I've had some ideas about what would be needed for that, but I can't imagine anybody signing off on any of it because it would involve a new layer of bureaucracy and audits to make sure that the data are what you say they are. And I just can't imagine anybody going for that politically. Yeah. I have to admit, I'm also not a fan of more bureaucracy. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I couldn't do it. I am terrible at paperwork and getting forms filed on time. It's my least favorite part of any job, especially this one. Um, one time as a grad student, I got audited by the IRB, just a random audit, not because I had done something wrong. Um, but it took the wind out of me. Like it, it just flattened me for a week having to deal with this IRB audit. So, yeah, I I mean, I say, like, these are the things we would need to be able to tell whether data sets are real or not. Um, but I don't think we I don't think that's actually practical. Um, I think it would it would be just a lot of burden and everybody would hate it. Uh, the, the psychologists would revolt. Yeah, um, but so is the, the long term solution is there more we just adopt more open science practices so at least some of the errors can be um you know the kind of stuff that i have can be easily checked if i have the data so that kind of stuff could just i mean that's in a way always already changing right like yeah i think that's the low-hanging fruit right is yeah yeah people post their data people post their materials people post their code um, so that in cases like the one you're dealing with, you can see what the numbers are supposed to be and how deeply the problems run. As far as misconduct, though, I think posting the data makes it a little bit easier to see the to see the issues. Right. When I got data from Zhang, it definitely revealed some issues that were not easily apparent. Um, yeah, that's just a by, weird looking data set. Just by reading the reading the articles. But even then, editors have been reluctant to deal with some of those things. And so I think that if, if it's misconduct you're concerned about, we also have to be asking how we keep journals and journal editors and institutions accountable. Um, because as best I can tell, editors-in-chief do whatever the hell they want, and nobody can say boo to them. And institutions handle... Um, investigations for scientific misconduct about as well as they handle any sort of internal investigation, which is that uh, the purpose of the investigation is really just to make the thing go away. So I have not yet been impressed by the rigor of a university's internal investigation. So how do we change that? What are the things that we do to increase the accountability for editors and uh, institutions? I don't know that yet. Okay. 
Yeah. I, I, okay. I think in general also, uh, I think we've run through my questions uh, that I had. Um, I remember the, uh, before we started recording, I asked you whether you wanted to mention anything. And uh, you said two papers, and I said we were going to bring them in smoothly. Oh. <laughs> um, I, that's not happened. No. <laughs> uh, but do you just want to mention them briefly now, uh, and maybe, yeah, briefly introduce uh, what what, yeah, what they are? Oh, sure. So one other nice thing is that our tool set. Uh, so just uh, just one comment. I'll you know put the references for this in the description. As for the other papers we've been discussing, minus the one I mentioned, I'm not going to put the reference for that in there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so our, our 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 tool set has been improving, right? We've got new things like, as you mentioned, Grim and Sprite from Nick Brown and James Heather's and folks like them. And in my own small way, I've tried to add to that tool set. Um, one of the things that suggests stupid fraud. Um, is an effect that's just way, 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 way too big. If you've been, so I'm in social psychology. If you've been in social psychology, you know that our effects are not like massive. Even a kind of big, obvious effect like conservatives say that social equality is less important to them than liberals do. Um, like that's kind of, you know, a a, a clear political difference there is liberals say they want this more than conservatives do. That difference is about seven tenths of a standard deviation. It's a Cohen's D of 0.7. That's a kind of obvious effect. Um, in social psychology, most effects are going to be smaller than that. They're not going to be bigger and more obvious than that. So if I'm reading a paper and it says, um, we, whispered the word equality into the room five minutes before subjects entered so that they would be subconsciously activated by the echo of this word. Um, and that effect is like one and a half standard deviations. I know that something is very seriously wrong, right? Either this is an extreme case of publication bias or uh, somebody misplaced the decimal place or uh, maybe possibly there's a chance that somebody ginned up the data. So I have this paper out in JESP now that tries to estimate, okay, given this dependent variable, given this measurement that you have, what is the biggest possible effect you would see on it in a realistic sort of lab question? Would it be one standard deviation? Would it be two standard deviations? Would it be three standard deviations? Um, because if you get that biggest possible effect and you see a paper in the literature that has a subtler manipulation that yields an even bigger effect, something might be wrong. So if people are pouring hot sauce with greater reliability and precision and consistency than when you ask them to pour exactly the same amount, right, suggests that there's something unusual about the consistency of those hot sauce pours. If you tell people, tell me what a mass murderer would do in this situation versus tell me what uh, the world's nicest dad would do in this situation, and that gets you a smaller difference than people describing what a generic person would do after being primed by a violent or nonviolent movie, that again suggests that something is off. The effects are too good to be true. Um, so there must be some sort of mistake. So I, I, I think when we start thinking about effect sizes, 
we're going to have an easier time detecting some obvious mistakes. But as far as more sophisticated frauds or more subtle mistakes, um, I still have no idea what we'll ever do about that. Yeah, uh, one point on the effect size thing. It's interesting. This is something I never really like what would be too big an effect size um, not something I really ever thought about too much and then again I, I never really had effect sizes that were huge or saw them but uh, there was a I think it's a blog post by Daniel Larkins the hungry judges thing exactly the hungry judges yeah, yeah, yeah. where he says like this if, like this isn't true the effect size is too large like if this was true then we'd organize our entire lives around it basically yeah um, and I think the, the the thing that I found interesting there is he mentioned the the effect size um, of other things that are very large. For example, the difference in height between men and women. Mm-hmm. And I think there that the the effect size is I can't remember what it was like one point seven or something. It's about one point seven, one point eight standard deviations. Those numbers come from um, Simmons, Simonson, and Nelson um, a talk they had called um, uh, I think it's like beyond p hacking or life after life after p hacking where they just try to get some obvious benchmark effect sizes for how much power you would need to detect some obvious things so to detect men are taller than women you can use your eyeballs uh you could also use samples of about i don't know like eight or ten per cell um and the point they were making was if you're studying something that is subtler than men are taller than women on average you're going to need more than eight or 10 subjects per condition. You're probably <laughs> going to need 100, 150 per condition. Um, but this has been useful to me when I see a paper that says, oh, uh, you know, we whispered the word activate into the work into the room five minutes before subjects walked in and they showed a three standard deviation difference in behavior. Yeah. You can say, no, you didn't, because just as surely as we have <laughs> men's size clothing and women's size clothing, we would have structured society around this massive effect of, you know, subconscious activation. Yeah. And I found it really interesting to just have like some real world examples as, yeah, as a benchmark to be like, oh, okay. Like, yeah, if if, yeah. if you have an effect size bigger than that. I mean, we actually, I had one thing that we did where we had pretty large effect sizes and I mean, they're not that big, but it was kind of, Actually, no, there was one that was actually as big, and I thought, this doesn't seem right. No, yeah, I had a coding error. Um, <laughs> I compared yeah. two completely different questions with each other. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, it's it. so this is something that I think we're really lacking in psychology, is we don't have good horse sense about how big an effect we should expect. One, our expectations are probably way too big um, because publication bias and p-hacking have led us to believe that all effects are big, right? I The, the joke around grad school was everything correlates at 0.4. And um, the, the horrible truth of that is it's not the case that everything correlates at 0.4. It's that everything, when you filter for statistically significant correlations at a sample size of about 40 or 50, the only things that reach significance are a correlation of 0.4. So our expectations are too high for what an effect size looks like in our fields. Um, but two, we really don't have a lot of experience thinking about plausible effect sizes. Everything is so contextually sensitive to the population or the measurement that we're using or whatever um, that sometimes people just say, hey, look, I have literally no idea 
what effect is plausible here. Um, it could be an effect of 0.01 standard deviations, or it could be an effect of 10 standard deviations. I have no clue whatsoever. And I have had editors make that argument explicitly to me when I say, hey, Stroop data doesn't act like this. They say, well, but maybe Stroop data acts like this in this population and this age range under these circumstances. You really don't know. Um, I find that implausible, but I can't prove it, right? Because I don't have access to that population at that age in these circumstances. Um, so we really don't have a lot of experience thinking about what sort of data is even likely. Uh, we, we're, we're acting like we were born yesterday each time we come to a new research question. <laughs> yeah. Is, um, to, to bring it back to the, the your paper then, what exactly is that the paper then? Is it a a discussion about the topic? Is it a oh, it's it's a demonstration of just the kind of idea of saying if you have a measure and you want to know how big the biggest possible effect size could be on it, hit it with a sledgehammer and see just how much of an effect you get out of it. Um, and if you are let's say running a meta analysis or a systematic review and you see an author or a paper that reports effects that are routinely in excess of that, maybe you should be concerned about that author's output. Um, because if the biggest possible effect you could plausibly get on this measure is 1.8, and there's somebody out there reporting two, two and a half, three, four, maybe you should check on that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, once once I heard the example you know, with high difference of men and women, effect sizes of four i wonder what that would even be yeah you need like two per cell <laughs> yeah i mean like the difference between like grown-ups and infants or something like, like what, that, what that uh, i think heathers yeah. james heathers has found another example that's like the effect of um opium on analgesia right so like is this effect of being primed by this word or playing this video game or reading this persuasive essay as potent as, um, you know, yeah. getting a big dose of an opioid painkiller? Um, probably not. Yeah, probably not. Okay. Uh, that's one of the other paper. Oh, the other paper is just on the same, same general idea. Um, they're just two papers, both kind of exploring ways to think about effects that are too big and maybe take a poke at them and see if they are indeed too big or if the data are indeed too consistent, too reliable. Okay. And that's uh, just so I can, for the references, uh, where did that appear? Uh, that was in Psych Science. That was comment on Yoon and Vargas. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll put that in the description of the uh, podcast. Um, yeah. I think I don't know whether you still have anything to add. I think I've, I've no, I can't gone through my stuff. I feel like that's that's been about it. Um, yeah, uh, thanks for thanks for listening to me go on about this. Um, <laughs> it's 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 cathartic, as you can see. I I, I could talk about this for days uh, because <laughs> I've got a lot trapped in me right now. Uh, yeah, I mean, no, it's uh, it's also been really interesting to me for me, uh, sp you know, specifically about the the example that I had, 
I don't know why somehow I expected you to say, okay, here's what you do. You contact the person. <laughs> you, know, you, you say like, the, not, not necessarily like you tell me exactly what mm -hmm. to do, but I somehow assumed it would be um, more in line of like, yeah, yeah, contact them, of course. It would like, be great if we had a consistent and clear flow chart for how to handle things like this, um, but we don't. And even at the journal level, uh, there's the Committee on Publication Ethics has flow charts for what editors are supposed to do when somebody writes in to say, hey, I'm peer reviewing this thing and it looks fake, or hey, you published this thing and it looks fake. Um, and those are only so helpful, um, in part because they tell the editor, you're not supposed to investigate, tell the university to investigate. And so if the universities are only doing like these um, half-assed show investigations, um, then the editor is not going to be able to do anything about it. Yeah, it's just a circle of people asking other people to <laughs> A circle of people ignoring each other's emails for eternity. It's academia all <laughs> over again. And, and then you just writing more emails. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, it, it's really weird. Like, it seems to me like in part, I'm kind of optimistic about the whole thing just because, you know, with more open data sets, a lot of these problems can mm -hmm. be... Um, you know, even like, as you mentioned, like in peer review, right? A lot of this stuff can be found out much quicker. Um, and I think that's something that's changing fairly quickly also. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we even had this once that, so my, my supervisor was, was reviewing a paper and I kind of helped out. And, uh, one of the comments we had was, you know, like for the experiment you're doing, you could easily put like individual data points into uh, the, the the figures right like there's no reason not to like it's, it's you can see everything clearly and it would be useful to kind of know what what's going on and then like a bit later we saw uh, a talk by the by the the people who uh, had submitted this paper and you know now there were data points and all the figures yeah and you know it's it's weird how like just i mean it's almost weird like seeing your actions actually have an effect uh, <laughs> quickly um but so i think like that kind of stuff i think is changing fairly quickly but you know as we said right in the beginning um the actual fraud is uh more or less if you're halfway intelligent about it yeah undetectable yeah so that's not optimistic then no <laughs> no um i again i i i I do the things that I do because I think it's helpful in the long run to bring a little bit of attention to this. Um, I've got in my drafts folder, basically a how to guide on committing fraud and never getting caught. It's a little bit satirical. Um, I don't know if I should submit it or not <laughs> um, because I don't know if it would actually, you know, help people address it or if it would just become the, the how to guide for how to actually commit fraud. Um, <laughs> I don't think yeah, anybody just, would ever actually publish it, but I do think. Um, really, I think I don't know, I'd be interested in reading yeah, it, and I, I think I, other people I, would too. I think there's value in getting everybody thinking about this problem um, because it is so hard to clean up, um, and the more we think about it, I think the better our chances at reaching some sort of institutional change that makes it a little bit easier to deal with. Yeah. I mean, I'd be interested to read it. I think other people would be too. And so I think there's also like, there's a paper by, by Carl Friston about, uh, it's called something like statistical advice for non-statistical reviewers or something. Mm. Uh, and it's like how to give advice if you don't know statistics. 
Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's a sarcastic or ironic kind of thing where like one of those, like always ask for more sample, larger sample size or something <laughs> like that. Um, and kind of just, uh, I can't, I mean, I read this like in my masters a few mm-hmm. years ago, so I can't remember exactly what it's about anymore, but, uh, I, I think when I read it, I went like, oh yeah, these are some fairly generic, like criticism that people have that don't really mean that much. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think. You know, in a way, this is also an article that's kind of uh, tongue in cheek, sure. but fulfills a purpose. So I think I'll come back uh, to that one. I'll, I'll I'll see if maybe that can give me a little guidance. <laughs> maybe.